Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Chase Jarvis. Welcome to another episode of the show, the Chase Jarvis Live Show on Creative Live. I am so excited for today's episode. Woo, you guys know this show. This is where I bring awesome guests, uh, the top creatives, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders on the show here to unpack actionable insights with the goal of helping you live your dreams in career, in hobby, and in life. I'm just bouncing up and down on my chair here because today, right now, I get to introduce Brene Brown. For the tiny handful of you who don't know who Brene Brown is, she is A, of course, an amazing human. B, she holds the record for the most Chase Jarvis live show appearances. This will be her third. No one else has done three. Well, she's a vulnerability and shame expert. And if you're saying like, I don't know what that is, just she is... I don't know, one of the most popular guests ever on the Oprah show. She's got one of the most popular TED Talks of all time. She is the author of four, I think, four number one New York Times bestselling books, one of which, the book Daring Greatly, has been a huge part of of my growth as an artist, unlocking my playbook for staying creative and staying, most importantly, true to myself. And in this particular episode, we talk about her new book, which is so amazing. It's called Braving the Wilderness, The Quest for True Belonging and the Courage to Stand Alone, which if you're a creator, an entrepreneur, you know that that is an important part. You have to be willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time in order to get your ideas out into the world. There's a lot of sort of weird stuff happening on culturally. The, culturally, the, the concept of not being divisive and rather being connected to one another is as important now as it ever, ever has been. So like in our past episodes where, I mean, I think I have been, you know, we were just talking about how I was going to intro the show here and Nasa, who helps me with this stuff, saying, you know, it was one of the key things about this show is it's also one of the most vulnerable you've been, Chase. Not in this show in particular, but in previous times where I've sat down with her, I just, I feel really comfortable. Uh, it's a really trusting, open, warm environment. And she and I go deep really, really quickly. She has this no BS way. She's from Texas. She has this no BS way of cutting through everything and getting right to the point, which I know you'll value. Um, a couple of takeaways. You know, we do talk about how these sort of divisive times, especially in the USA right now, are great breeding ground for amazing art and for the opportunity to be vulnerable and to connect at the same time. We also, well, Brene has such a great way of talking about valuing our one's work, our work, uh, our work as creators or as entrepreneurs. Um, she has this concept of having a strong back and a soft front, being willing to sort of be empathetic and vulnerable and, and go into some of the, the challenges that we have from a relationship, from our personal stuff. It's just, it's, it's incredibly powerful. Um, and, and how to do so without, um, without being a jerk or without being, you know, just getting steamrolled. Everything in this episode comes down to taking the reins on your own emotions, on your own brain, and, in an effort to connect with others and make great art, make great stuff as an entrepreneur. So I guess there's the only thing that can do it more justice than me just going on and on about it is actual Brene's actual words in our show. I can't wait for you guys to hear. Please give her a shout out. She's at Brene Brown on all the social. Um, and of course, um, you know, feel free to tag great quotes or whatever. Um, without further ado, let's get into the show. But really quick before we do a word from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? 
Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits, and today Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Life classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Hi. I'm coming to you. Yes. Hi, hi, hi. Hi. I'm afraid to move. I'll knock my mic off. <laughs> I know. It was very, like... So we're in a loft apartment in Austin, Texas. I know it looks like a very polished studio, but th that's a squeaky chair. <laughs> we knew it was going to happen. Thank you very much for coming from Houston. Um, very happy to be with you. I missed you. It was, it's been like almost a year. It's been a year. Thanks for coming to Texas. Incredible. Congratulations on another book. Thanks. Um, I can say unequivocally that your work helped me more as a creator than any other work that I've read, any modern work that's not a biography, it's not about, it's not a how-to, it's about courage and Daring Greatly was the first thing that I really, I probably have read that five times. I go, I use it as reference, um, The Gifts of Imperfection, um, what's another one, you have another? Rising Strong. Rising Strong was the last one. Yeah. Um, this one, I'm on my second read. I, you sent this to me, whatever, two weeks ago. Thank you very much. Uh, this is going to be another reference book over and over and over. What made you write it? So I've always really been interested in belonging in the topic, and I started writing about belonging in 2010 with the Gifts of Imperfection. Um, but as the world has gotten crazier and a little crueler, mm -hmm. Um, I became very interested in this idea, again, of belonging, because I think I've struggled with belonging my whole life. Mm -hmm. I still struggle with it. You went so, you went into it in the first, like, 30 pages in a way that I didn't think was, like, possible. It was so amazing that you opened your heart up that much in the first 10 pages. Or it was like, really hard. I'm not good yeah, at it. I think you actually wrote a sentence and like, yeah. I just read that and that was very hard. I'm yeah. sobbing or something yeah. like that. So, sorry. I no, it was just hard. So, I just... I wanted to understand more about it. There was a quote from Maya Angelou that's really been kind of, as we'd say in Texas, stuck in my craw for like 20 years. <laughs> craw, I love it's it. Stuck in my craw. Um, it really just irritated me. I love everything about Maya Angelou. She's been a hugely important person in my life. But she's got a quote that says, you're only truly free until you belong everywhere, nowhere, which is everywhere. The price is high and the reward is great. I thought, what the hell does that mean? You belong everywhere and nowhere. Like belonging, like this is the stuff that we're Rooted, wired yeah. for. Yeah, yeah like connection. We, like 
Here's the one thing I can tell you for sure that I've known from my research. In the absence of love and belonging, there is always suffering. And I feel like I've, I've really experienced some suffering around belonging in my life. Um, and I thought, what does that mean? You're only free until you belong nowhere and everywhere. It just sounds, it sounds poetic, but it reads like bullshit to me. Like yeah. it cannot be true. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to dig into it even more. And I had no intention really of writing a book set against the backdrop of the world today mm -hmm. and how really crappy we are to yeah. each other. It's, it's, it's strange right now. It's strange yeah, right it's now. Strange. But it turns out that I don't think you can write about belonging and connection really without being honest about what we're up against with each other. And so I just started digging into it and I kept asking this question like men and women who have this, this really strong sense of true belonging, what do they have in common and is there any validity to this idea of belonging everywhere and nowhere? Well, damn. I, I think, the, and like you talk about drill team, yeah. like trying out for drill team. I think it's so, it's so, so powerful. And the human, like that we're hard, hard wired for connection is when you've experienced connection, you know it. Yeah. And when, after you've experienced connection, and I think we all have, when you, when it's not there, we all suffer. The fact that um, experience, that it's so relevant right now I feel dis more more connected to some people and disconnected to others than I ever have before. And there's something like when I look around and other people say that, I'm my bullshit meter is like, eh, yeah. I don't like. But you, uh, you can you sew us together in a way that no one else can. So a thank you. B, what what has that meant for your research, and what does it mean for us as? Um, as citizens and humans, and I know there's a framework in, in the book here. I'm not trying to get you into the framework, but no, I think what do we do? A, I think for me, what was really surprising was after I spent I spent a year trying to understand where we are as a country, and really globally, this is happening across the world. And what I learned was pretty shocking to me that at the very same time that we've sorted ourselves into mm. these ideological bunkers, mm. that we really actually, demographically, we don't go to school and worship and live by people who are different than us as much as we used to. Mm -hmm. um, and the more sorted we become, you would think the more connected we become, because now I'm just with people who are like me. Yep. But Your algorithms are tuned right. to show you people who That's are it. just like you. That's yeah, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, it's like the Amazon book yep. thing, you know. If you like this, you like this. If you agree with Harvey, you'll really love Pete, you know. Yep. Um, but it turns out that behind those ideological bunkers, it's not that we're deeply connected to each other. We just hate the same people. That's so powerful. God, and hating, hate it. Yeah, and hating the same people doesn't really mean jack when yeah. it comes down to belonging because... Just because you hate the same people doesn't mean that you're going to show up for me when I'm throwing up at chemo or you're going to go pick up my kids from school when I'm running late or have a flat tire. It's like, it's not real connection. It's not super meaningful, deep connection. And so we're getting more and more sorted. And this is like a crazy fact. In 1976, okay. only 20% of counties delivered landslides for the presidential nominees. Like 20, only 20% 20 of people okay. lived in counties where the whole county delivered. Got it. Trump, Clinton, 80% yeah. of counties delivered landslides for one or the other. 
Like we are really yeah. completely it's, sorted. It's literally flip this, yeah. it's the 80-20 flip, wow. But if you look in 1976 at the rates of loneliness, they were much lower than they are today. So we're more sorted, but we're lonely. We, you know, and loneliness is serious stuff. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? It's like the isolation, like self, self yeah. something, self-identified isolation. Yeah, yeah, it's self, yeah, it's self-identified isolation. Like, you're on the outside looking in. Yeah, and it's really interesting. Um, John Capaccio, who's a researcher in Chicago, has got this amazing book. I mean, just his research on loneliness is incredible. But he talks about how primal loneliness is for a social species. That when we're hungry, our body says, you're in danger if you don't eat. Thirst is, you're in, you're in actual physical danger if you don't hydrate. Mm -hmm. Pain says, there's tissue damage somewhere, you've got to heal. And loneliness says, you need social connection or you're in trouble. And when I first read that, I was like, okay, that was like very moving and well done. Yeah, Kudos to nice you. Nice little fatale. Yeah, right. But, <laughs> Judo. Right. Yeah, but a little kind of hyperbole. Yeah. But then when you look at the research, loneliness is a greater predictor of an early death than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day or obesity. Like, wow. Loneliness kills people. Wow. It is a huge predictor of mental health, physical health, and early death problems. Yeah, I mean, it's... That is, uh, sorry, my mouth is yeah, still, no, still open. Yeah, no, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's like, so sordid and lonely. And so the question for me was like, how did we get here? I, I like to, um, to me, uh, the, the, the audience of people who watch the show yeah. largely identify as creative, entrepreneurial, or aspire to be. I, I put them in two groups, the zero to one, people who are just sort of like realizing that it's okay to consider yourself creative and that that's a really important part of being human and there are people who already identify. And for each of those communities, um, the concept of belonging, the concept of bravery, the concept of putting yourself out there is all very, very, it's, it's maybe even more near and prescient than um, in some other communities because being a creator and being the man or woman in the arena is what I think a lot of people come to this show and, to, and yeah. pay, pay attention to me about. But the thing that I'm, I used to really worry about saying is that it's, it's more problematic now than before because I'm kind of like, hey, look, at time is long and there's been a lot of, like, it's the safest time ever to be along. Alive, just the reporting on violent crime is up ten thousand percent, but it's actually right. all other violent crime is down. But the psychology, the loneliness, all of the divisiveness, the, the research that you decided about, you know, uh, about who we, who our tribes are, and how we spar, it really is a very divisive and di divisive, divisive. Either way, I <laughs> oh, think. Nice. Yeah, I go back it's, and forth. It's a divisive time. I think that makes for great art. And I, I would never accept that culturally just to get great art, but because it, it does create, um, I think it does provide the impetus for great art, help the people who are listening right now understand how they can use creativity or use any of the tools that are a part of them or their community to transcend loneliness and get out of it. You've got, you got four things here. You've got like a framework Okay, you've got to hand me your book. Okay. You've got to hand me this book. Okay. Y'all have to give me a minute to okay. find this. I want to... Okay. Is it, I want, you got a quote? You got a... No, I want to talk to you about something about art. Okay. Um, because it's like it's so weird. Like when I did the morning shows and stuff, when I was doing the pre-interview, they're like, what's this deal about creativity and art in here? You yeah. seem very passionate about it. But it's it's something that I wanted to... 
Well, you were, I don't know, you, while you're looking, did yeah, you find it? Yeah, I found okay, it. Okay, okay. But right before you do, I'm going to say, so if you haven't watched our, we have two earlier talks. Um, one, actually, just if you Google my name and your name, and I love that it's on your, the head of your website. Yeah. Um, when, under videos. It's one of my favorite videos ever. You were, I mean, you're on fire right now. You were absolutely on fire then. It was the first time we'd ever met. Yeah. I was so blown away, and the folks in my community um, really rallied around it, and I think... Again, I try and help people unlock that part of themselves. Yeah. And when I, re when I read that bit that you've got about, I didn't know that you were on the that on the morning shows you talked about that, but it's powerful stuff. So walk us through it if you can. No, I didn't talk about it because yeah. the people in the morning shows were like, "What is your thing about creatives and art in here?" And mm -hmm. I was like, "It's so important because here's the thing: we are lonelier, and we are more disconnected than we've ever been, and it's polarized. But art can save us." <laughs> no, it, this is what I write. Um, art has the power to render sorrow beautiful and make loneliness a shared experience and transform despair into hope. Only art can take the holler. Of a, I, I tell the story about um, Bill Monroe, a bluegrass musician, listening to the holler of vets returning from World War I and incorporating it in his high lonesome music. And I said, only art can take the holler of a returning soldier and turn it into a shared expression and a deep collective experience. Music, like all art, gives pain in our most wrenching emotions, voice, language, and form, so it can be recognized and shared. The magic of all art is the ability to both capture our pain and deliver us from it at the same time. Okay, that's y'all creatives. That, that, that's, 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 yeah, no, that's, 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 that's you people. I mean, that's like, if you think we're going to get out of this shit show without art, you're mistaken. So the time is upon us. Um, what, uh, oof, sorry, I'm still thinking about that quote, still getting shivers. Um, so here we are. Um, we... I'm, I'm asking people to go inside themselves. Yeah. The best art comes from in here. Yeah. And, and especially as we're trying to find our way, we spend so much time looking at what other people are doing, and it's great because you can remix. And But the, the, most, the best way for one to stand out is to share your own experiences. Yeah. Um, and it's because it's about being different, not just better, in the world of creativity. Um, do you have any, can you be prescriptive? I, we've been pretty theoretical right yeah. now. I'm, I'm, we'll, we'll get into the wilderness and what that means. Um, I don't want to only talk about the book because you've, your work is vast, but can you get tactical for a second? Yes. So why don't you be prescriptive? I come in, I sit down, and you're my counselor, and I say, I'm kind of feeling disconnected. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a creator, uh, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm trying to build things. I feel alone, I'm, um, I don't know what I'm doing. Help. What, what can you do to help me? So what do you Okay, do? so probably from a caveat, I have to say that I'm not a therapist. <laughs> so I would say if you're in my office looking for that, we're, we've got to go together somewhere else. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. But here's what I would say. Um, the thing that I learned about belonging that I think is so powerful and that I cling to as a creative is that belonging is not something we negotiate with the external world. It's something we carry in our hearts. And as it turns out that the men and women who have the highest levels of true belonging not only find sacred being a part of something bigger, mm -hmm. but they have the courage to stand alone. And the reason why art and creativity are going to be so important to our healing and to whatever comes next in our world is every creative knows what it's like to stand alone.
And so creatives have this incredible ability when they find the confidence to be able to find beauty and value in being part of a creative community, mm -hmm. but also the courage to stand alone. And so what I would say to you is understand, and I wouldn't say this as a therapist, I would just say it as a fellow yeah. creative that's sure. found my own pain and success in equal, <laughs> equal combinations, <doses. laughs> yes, um, is be a part of a creative group and community, but don't ever believe for a second that you are not going to have to stand on your own. Um, you will have to be alone at some point. It is what we're called to do. And to get to a place where you can find, that's what Maya Angelou meant, I think, when she said, you belong everywhere, nowhere, which is everywhere. Because you belong, if you carry belonging in your heart, mm -hmm. it's not negotiated externally with other people. And I think the thing that's really powerful is as a social species, the reason why we feel lonely is because we are neurobiologically wired to be with each other. Mm -hmm. And as a social species, we need art and we need music and we need photography and we need to see the artifacts that allow us to find our humanity in each other. Wow. And that is not, that's art. Yeah. That's music. Oliver Sacks says, music pierces the heart directly. It needs no mediation. Like that is one of our ways out here. I think that, um, so I, I don't often quote Jeff Bezos, but for the entrepreneurs out there, um, he said, you, you have to be willing to be, what was it, you have to be willing to be misunderstood for long periods of time as an entrepreneur. Oh, God, you do. Oh, my God. I hate <laughs> I think that it's, quote. Uh, yeah. It's true. It's so true. I think of, um, so confessionally, uh, me and the crew had lunch across the street before you arrived, and we had your book out. We were, you know, swapping quotes and ideas and favorite passages, and we each recounted briefly the things that, that were the most successful in any one of our careers or the best films we've ever made or, you know, or breakthroughs or companies or whatever. And 100% of them had massive misunderstanding. People didn't get the thing oh, that yeah. you were going to do or that you were standing for. And so, A, I believe it's true. B, uh, it takes me back to something you shared in a previous interview, which if you're tuning in for the first time, this is the first time you're seeing us two together. Um, you talked about um, your TED Talk. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the short backstory is that Brene gave a talk about vulnerability and you put yourself, you put yourself out there. And I, I think you were probably, I remember something you told me about like, it's hard to get invited to parties when you talk about what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I'm a vulnerability. Shame and vulnerability researcher. They're like, she's fun. Okay, great. I'm okay. Yeah. I'm gonna move on to the yeah. next person at the party. Yeah. Um, so tell me about your own journey of being misunderstood, um, or maybe even feeling disconnected, and what you feel like has brought it back. I think I'm not unlike a lot of creatives, and I owe probably my career and my creativity to not belonging. And so because I didn't belong growing up ever, um, you know, we moved all the time. And we moved it really hard, fourth grade, sixth grade, eighth grade, um, always the new girl and always different. Um, it forced me to become a pattern finder. So I became someone who could seek 
and understand patterns in people's behaviors, in people's emotions, and I could predict what they were gonna do better than they knew what they were going to do. And so I think my creativity, like a lot of people's creativity, was born of being on the outside. Yeah. Like if you go to my house, you'll see I, I collect outsider art. Um, because I, and I don't, I never even thought about that until just right this minute, but I, I like the view from out there. Yeah. Um, and so I think for me, like with the TED Talk, I've just never done anything that's turned out to be valuable that wasn't just scared shitless to do it. Like everything I've ever done that's ever really made a contribution, I have felt alone in doing it mm -hmm. and afraid, and, but alive. Yeah, that's a really interesting, go on, go, tell me more about that, alive. Alone but alive, what, that's, that's sort of like the wilderness. It is the wilderness. Um, the metaphor for the book is, let's see if I get this right. Yeah. Rather than asking you, I'm going to try and you, yeah, you check my work. Um, yeah, there's, it's, 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 there's a poetic narrative about it being wild and risky, and you have to prepare to go there, and it's, it's, it's also stunning. Um, and so there's an obvious, really clear connection between that and putting yourself out there. Yeah. There's risks and rewards and beauty. Um, but there's an interesting twist, if, if I get this right, that it's not that you are in the wilderness, it's that you are the wilderness. Explain that if you would. Well, I think what I what I have found is that after the first time, and it only really takes one time, that after the first time that you opt to brave the wilderness, you pull away from what a group of people thinks. Maybe it's your maybe it's your creative community, it's your critics. The first time you pull away and find power in standing on your own, I think your heart is marked by the wild. I think you belong in into the wilderness in a different way. Because every time after that, when you choose fitting in over belonging to yourself, it's painful. And so to me, the whole idea is not just navigating the wilderness, which I think every poet and theologian and writer over time has used the wilderness as yep. this kind of a lone journey thing. It's not just about navigating the wilderness. It's about becoming the wilderness. It's about becoming, I am going to be on my own a lot and it's going to be okay because there is beauty and strength in that. And it's not that I won't ever find great joy in being a part of something, mm -hmm. but I will always belong to and believe in myself first. You have, you, you told me, I don't know if this was a secret, I think at, this, at the time you told me it was a secret that you hadn't shared it before, uh, it was that you keep a list of the people that actually matter to you. Yeah. And it was around when you shared the, the famous Roosevelt quote about the, yeah. the man in the arena. I, I say man and man or woman in the arena. And it's a list of five or something people that these are the people that you don't want to disappoint and everyone else you're going to... Yeah, my, my little, it's a one inch by one inch square. And in, the, in there are the names of people whose opinions of me matter. Like if you're in here, your opinion of me matters. If you're not, I just cannot waste a lot of time worrying about what you think. And so the people on that list are people who love me, not despite my vulnerability or my imperfection, but because of my vulnerability and imperfection. And so those people are the people that really, I care what they think. Mm -hmm. Steve, number one, you know, my Kate. Yep. You know, um, and not because he's a, because he'll say, yeah, you just screwed that up. And you're gonna have to make amends. It's gonna be shitty and yeah. hard. But I got your back. But yeah, that that was a big mistake. Yeah. 
Like, so I think. But how does that? How do you reconcile the list of people that you care deeply about with also standing alone? Do you feel like those people are there when you're standing alone? Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Those are the people that understand that. Sometimes they stand alone. I support them. Sometimes I stand alone, um, and it's not easy. But there's this great. Um, I asked a friend, Jen Hatmaker, who went through this really hard time last year. She is kind of a. She has a kind of a, a big Christian. She's a pastor. She has a big Christian audience, yep. and she came out very strongly, pro GLBT, mm-hmm. um, and she really got just. Yep. eaten alive. And so she, I asked her to write about her experiences in the last chapter of the book. And she just writes something so beautiful. She says, but it's okay out here in the wilderness because it's where all the artists and prophets and creatives have always lived. Yes. You know, I mean, yeah. and I think no, it's... identity there. there. Yeah, it's just, I think, and, you know, I think if, even if you look at, this is, is, before we, you know, before right now, when I was thinking about <laughs> being with you, um, I thought about the kind of four practices of true belonging. And there's, there's a couple things that I think are really interesting from a creative perspective. Okay. The first is the whole book is a freaking paradox. Everything, like belonging is standing alone. Why? Mm-hmm. Um, each of the four practices are paradoxes. And one of the things I love is that no one can straddle the tension of paradox better than a creative mm-hmm. because that is the creative energy, right? Yeah, you define paradox in the book. Uh, you want to take this one? You talked well, about Carl it. Jung says that it's our greatest spiritual gift. It, the paradox is the only thing that becomes becomes remotely close to ex- describing the human experience, and that's art. Yeah. That's the tension of be fierce and kind, tough and tender. You know, like it's that tension. And so when I think about the practices, think about art. Think about all great art. The first practice of true belonging, people are hard to hate close up, move in. Who shows us a glimpse of what we think we hate and can make it beautiful, better than an artist? Really, Yeah. really through photography, through film. I mean, I've been on this whole belonging film tear, just looking at what filmmakers do. Um, Like I just watched, one of my favorite, it's all my, my favorite new rom-com, um, The Big Sick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, like, who takes us closer to people we believe we hate and then shows us their humanity in a way that's so frustrating for us than photography or a great film or a song? Like, who does that? And then the second practice is speak truth to bullshit. <laughs> be Who's, civil, though. But uh, Be civil. But who, more than artists, call bullshit on the things in the world that are unkind and untrue? I mean, honestly. Like, you want to say, well, I think everything's really better in Syria than we thought it was. Talk to some of the photographers who changed our whole understanding. It it can be very clearly argued that that photography in particular changed the opinion of the Vietnam War. Oh, There's for sure. A handful of like five right. photographs that shifted the American psyche over to like, nope, done with this mess. And I think the same is true. I think Syria is a, like maybe never before have we had that much access, like real time live oh, video, time. like yeah. so hardcore. I think that's a phenomenal point. So that's thing two of the four. Yeah, and think about what Kim Burns is doing right now with Vietnam. Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone that I know who has seen an early 
production of that, said it will fundamentally shift how you think about our country. But who can do that? Can a politician do that? No. Can a social scientist do that? No. A researcher? No. A creative. Yeah. A filmmaker. Because what creatives do is they bring truth to us in a way where we recognize our own humanity. I mean... It's sort of like they, it, it's, they, they wrap it in something that is digestible in the moment. Yes, and it's yeah. real to us. Yeah. Like, oh, I never thought of that. I mean, that's why when people are like, help me understand the creative part of this book and what you talk about, you like, I speak so powerfully about art and creativity. It's that these are actually the leaders of this movement. Because if you think you're going to show the world your perspective on something and do it surrounded with people who are you know, like-minded and cheering you on, then you don't understand what it means to be a creative and you've been watching too many beer commercials. Because that shit only happens in beer commercials. Yeah. Um, when you decide to become a creative and share your, your perspective of the world with us, you sign up for the wilderness. And it's scary. Oh God, yes. It's scary. Oh God, yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not thinking you should do it because it's the hardest yeah. moments of my life, like writing this book. Even though I have a team and tons of support, when it comes out, I'm taking the hits. I'm yeah. taking the criticism. I'm taking the why this. I'm taking the you cuss too much. I'm taking the you know. Um, what movement are you standing for? Yeah. What do you what, believe yeah. in? And. What do you stand for? You're too yeah. conservative. You're too liberal. You know, it's like, but that's what you sign up for when you're a creative. And then the next one, the next practice is, so it's people are hard to hate, close up, move in, um, speak truth to bullshit, but be civil. The third one, hold hands with strangers. And that is a chapter almost exclusively on creativity, shared creativity, and what I call collective pain or a ministry of presence, just being with people in pain. There's not a single person I helped in Houston that I could actually stop the water from coming in and taking away their homes. But I could be with them in those moments. And I think a ministry of presence is really about being with people in pain so that a person's broken heart can know it's connected to every other heart that's been broken across time. And no one delivers on that like creatives. It is, and that's the gift. Like whether it's it, uh, the media or the medium doesn't, like you just used cinema, I think of how many, like the connection of moments in your life with music. When you, when I hear, oh, yeah. When I hear uh, like Pretty in Pink from that movie oh, in yeah. 1986, or you know, just take, it's, it's, um, it's all, and smell, like it's almost Proustian, like food has the ability it is. to do that. Um, what, so that's the third thing, and I think, uh, let's go back to just remind us, yeah. and the third one is hold hands with strangers. Yeah. But what's the other half of that? Hold hands with strangers. It's just hold hands with, okay. it's hold hands, and then with strangers, which yeah. seems weird, but here's the thing. I describe like kind of the world we're in right now as a, it's a crisis, a spiritual crisis. And when I sp say spiritual crisis, people get really squirmy and they're like, oh God, is she talking religion? Which I'm yeah. not. Um, Cause I'm not sure that didn't bring us here in some way, yeah. dogma, mm -hmm. religion. Mm -hmm. But spirituality is really simple definition to me from the data. It's the belief that we're inextricably tied to each other. That you and I are connected in a fundamental way that can never be disconnected. Um, we're all connected to each other inextricably. 
And while that is not breakable, it is forgettable. You cannot break human connection, but you can forget about it. And to share moments, to hold hands with strangers, to be like, I just remember this moment like four or five months ago, I'm at a U2 concert. First one I took my kids to. Super exciting. It was so great. Um, I've seen them 15 times. Um, Hitchhiked through Europe with nothing but the war cassette tape and a Walkman and a like. Hey man, I did the same thing. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, (laughs) it's like, yeah. It's my, you know, and I remember when one of my favorite songs came on from the War album, my daughter and my son, who were standing on either sides of me, grabbed my hands. And I, I just got goosebumps in there, and I looked down, and my son said, they're playing your song. You know, and I just wept. You know, um, someone, a friend of mine sent me, um, my friend Eleanor sent me a, a, a picture from her, the UT concert that she went to in New Orleans, I think like last week. And she put U2-Christ, like it's like the Eucharist, but it's the U2-Christ. <laughs> um, and it does have that meaning yeah, for us, right? It does. And it's yeah. not just that, it's, you know, it's, it's these moments where you're standing next to a stranger, Texas football, right down the street from here. And you're hugging the person next to you because it's a pick six and yeah. you know, they run it all the way in and it's amazing. Um, they're just moments that remind us not only what's possible between humans Mm -hmm. and even strangers, but I think more profoundly what's true about what's between us. That's the truth of how we're built to be together. You you talk in the book about, um, and I think elsewhere in your research, about the moments after 9-11 as a a time of bonding and and yet how temporary even that was. And do you feel like this framework is a, is a way to try and stay? Because those moments are, that's to me, when I read that part of the book, I was thinking like, just think if it was always like that. Yeah. If we could all, because what you're doing when you, you're saying like, I see you, I see you for who you are, you yeah. see me, we're all in this together. Like those are um, just very simple, I think basic human connections, but you give that or you receive that gift automatically in those moments as opposed to having to manufacture it or work for it or sort of like keep it in your mind so that when someone cuts you off in traffic, you can still wave like your dad. Yeah, not the other wave. Yeah, Yeah, not the other way around. Not the one finger wave. Yeah, not the one finger wave. Um, That's so true. And is, do you feel like, what I was grokking by the end of the book is that it's really the, the four, the four. what do you call these four things? Principles? I think it's kind of four practices. Because so you have to put them daily, in practice. Daily, yeah. daily practice. Um, that I saw a very clear path to be able to experience that on a, on a daily basis. Um, which brings me to the fourth one, which to me might be my favorite. Um, it reminds let, me of Kate, your wife. I'll, I'll let you share. Um, strong back, soft front, wild heart. Um, that we need a strong back, we need to be courageous, soft front, we need to be vulnerable and open, and we need to have that wild heart. And I think the big practice from that is, and I think this is such a great, important message for all of us, and especially for your audience of creatives, stop walking through the world looking for confirmation that you don't belong, because you will always find it. Stop walking through the world looking for evidence that you're not enough, because you will always find it. Mm-hmm. Um, your self-worth and your belonging is not something that we negotiate externally. It's something we carry in our wild hearts. Um, and if we spend our lives looking everywhere we go for evidence that 
I don't really belong in this meeting. I'm not really an artist. Um, I just do this on the side and this is my side hustle, but it's not really my job. Or we keep comparing ourselves. You will find exactly what you're looking for. It's, yeah, what's the, phenomenon, the psychological phenomena when you, uh, you buy a new car and then you start seeing it everywhere because you're looking yeah, for it? Yeah, I mean, part of it's confirmation bias. Yeah, if yeah. you say, like, okay, how many people see the color red? And you look around and you start saying, well, that maroon thing is kind of red. Yeah. Like, you're looking for red, you'll see things yeah. that are shades of red and you'll actually see more of it. I guess that all is followed in our confirmation it is. bias. Whether you, whether you think you can or can't, you're right. I don't remember who said that. But to, um, the, the worth and belonging, like... Talk to me about how the social world that we live in has, has maybe give me both sides of the coin, both positively and negatively. I don't know if you have a positive spin on it. I've, I've only, I think I'm only familiar with your criticisms of it. Um, I, I actually do. I think, you mean social media? Yeah, I think I because think, you're just compare schlogger. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think social media is a great communication tool. Mm -hmm. I think it's a sucky connection tool. So if we're using tell, it to tell me more. yeah, so if we're using it to communicate with each other, if we're using it to um, talk to each other, then I think it's helpful and it can be great. If we're using it only as our only form of connection to each other, it falls really short. Yeah. Um, so, so for example, I tell a story in the book where I lost track of a what my like my first true love, which is my first best friend live growing up in New Orleans. We found each other on Facebook. Um, she's, my relationship with her, her name's Eleanor, is one of the most important relationships in my life right now. And will, I think will be forever till I die. Um, but it's not because we just started talking on Facebook, it's because we drove and we hang out together yeah. and we see each other. And so I just don't think it's a substitute for real connection, but I think we can communicate. But I will say this. Okay. If you are disembodied from your identity mm -hmm. on any social media, that's bullshit. So, uh, like if, if you're if you're pretending to be somebody else, or yeah, you just or you just have or, no yeah. name, yeah, anonymous, some, yeah. Ano some anonymous name, no real picture. I won't even communicate with you. And if you send something to me, positive or negative, I'm deleting you. I'm banning you from my site because to disembody yourself from your identity, you're participating and contributing to nothing at all because you're saying things to other human beings that you would probably never say. Yeah. And you're certainly not close to them. Like, get close, right? No, yeah. yeah. It's the opposite of that. It's the opposite. And so I think for communicating our art, um, for talking about things that are just communicative but not connective, mm -hmm. I think it's helpful. But it's not helpful if you're disembodied from your identity. It's not a helpful place to work through your pain. Mm -hmm. And, and I, sadly, that's when you're isolated and alone. You go into your phone yeah. and you look for the thing that's not there. Not only is it not there, but it's like you're comparing. You know that you're late on your your cell phone bill and that you just got a bad grade on the test yeah. and that you crashed your car and you can't afford to pay for it. Yeah. And you're looking at someone else's highlight reel. I mean, the ESPN yeah. highlight, play yeah. of the day. That's <laughs> yeah. all you get is the play of the day. Yep, on everybody's everything. And invariably, uh, we have a mutual friend, Marie Porleo. Yeah. Compare Schlager, she talks about like, why don't you try and create before you consume that? Because it's it's the creative part yes. that will empower you and make you and feel you know connect you with your feelings and your emotions totally. and and could maybe deliver that for someone else before you consume. I think that's a powerful. Um, so strong back, soft front, wild heart, vulnerable, courageous, 
that strong back is really about boundaries. Yeah. Talk to me about boundaries. That's like, um, I know, I guess I, I don't, I think about them a lot. Some of the most important moments in my life were that were like breaking through boundaries. Um, some were like set artificially by me. Right. Some were set by others and I went there or banged up against them and that created a conflict. Um, talk to me about that, about boundaries. Well, I'm going to tell you the story of how I get to the best definition of boundaries from a creative. Okay. Kelly Ray Roberts, okay. artist, Portland. Um, she's an artist who self-trained. She was an oncological social worker, uh, like meaning a social worker in oncology, hard work. Yeah. She taught herself to paint. Now she has a thriving, huge business. Um, and she was teaching art classes, and people were copying her art and selling it and selling it on Etsy and selling it at different places. Um, and one day she wrote a blog post and it was about boundaries. And she said, let me tell you what's okay and what's not okay. And she made a list of everything that was okay. It's okay if you copy my art and hang it in your house. It's okay if you download one of my paintings and use it as a little sticker on your website as long as it's attributed. It's okay if you do this. It's okay if in good spirit you do this and this. It is not okay if you do the following five things. I love it. And it was the most, the clearest example. And I called her and I'm like, you just pulled some social work magic <laughs> bullshit on here. And she goes, Yes, it would be so helpful if creatives were all social workers because we're trained on here's what's okay and what's not okay. Mm. You can come to my party, love to have you. You can't get shit-faced. Yeah. You know, and that's a hard conversation. So I think one of the reasons why, or for creatives, the biggest thing I run into, and I work with creatives all the time and interviewed them just almost exclusively for Rising Strong, um, is people are afraid to put value on their work. So true. People are afraid to charge for it. People are afraid to, hey, look, I know you're a really good photographer. Can you come and shoot this wedding? For? Yeah, for nothing. For zero dollars. Yeah, for just like a free quiche and, you know, whatever. <laughs> it's, you're sort of serving. No, because you, do you know how stressful it is when you get, do you know what happens when you get to a wedding and things oh. don't go well? <laughs> I've never shot a wedding in my life because the concept of the mother of the bride is way more frightening to yeah. me than Google like head of advertising right. hanging out with you. It's like the, for the people who do that, that is, that's a stressful amount of work for sure. Right. And so the answer is I'd love to shoot the wedding. Um, this is my fee for doing that. Yeah. Oh man, come on. This, I mean, I'd really love to, but you know, because if you don't put value on your work, no one else will. I mean, and I can tell yeah. you this and I, I'd be curious if this was your okay. experience. Pro bono work, when I do it, happens to be the hardest. Um, they ask the most. They push. They break the most boundaries. Yeah. Um, and I get into, can get into resentment very quickly. And so for me, it's just like, here's what's okay and here's what's not okay. Yep. I'll give you my version is work for free because you love it or full price and nothing in between. To me, that's it. To me, it's the in between. Like if you work for a low price, that's it. That's where the resentment just goes to a thousand because overnight or in a minute. Because I'm like, sorry, you know, it was supposed to be fifty grand, and I'm here for five hundred because I wanted to help. Yeah. So that's why I like. If you are literally getting paid nothing, you can go like, bye. Yeah. At, at any time, 
and you know, I don't hold that over anyone who for whom I would work for free, whether it's a nonprofit or, or, right. or um, but it's, I think it's exactly right. You're it's, you're not you're not signing yourself up for a shit sandwich. Yeah. In that really low wage, and to me, this is I, I see this happening. This is I think at catastrophic levels when people are just starting to figure it out that you like th this low wage idea is very tough because you want to make some money. You feel a tremendous amount of pressure to validate to your husband, your spouse, your peers, your parents that you can get paid. And when you do, and you that's when you get bulldozed by, yeah. you get bullied by the... You the, do. And, and then there's this other, the back side of uh, that, the other side of the same coin rather, is that they usually do that on the promise of more work at a higher rate later. And the reality is, let's say, your rate is $5,000 to shoot this wedding, and they say they offer you five hundred on the promise of, like, my sister's getting married, and, you know, I'm sure we yeah. can get her to hire you, and there's, there's more work. That if they do ever have $5,000, will they ever call you? No. And the answer is absolutely not. Never. Because you're the $500 person. And when they have 5000 are they going to try and settle for the five hundred? Never. Zero Never. times out of a hundred will they call. And goosebumps. It's so you can quote me on this anytime you want. Oh Free my God! Or, yeah. Why is it true? It, I don't know. It's but it's just it's like a epidemic level, especially when you're starting out, or even maybe worse because starting out you want you're still figuring yeah. out your own yeah, yeah. thing. But it's like when your back's up against the wall, that's when it's really hard to make good choices um, with respect to your your career because you want to put food on the table, you want to pay your cable bill or whatever, so. No, it's true, because I do do stuff I love for free and never have any resentment. Mm -hmm. But it's the, it's the. You get sucked in them. So that's the strong, that's the strong back. Yeah. And the soft front is, you don't have to be a, a jerk when you say no, you yeah. can just say, really appreciate asking. Yeah, thank you so much. I can't so do much. that. Yeah, yeah. And, and you don't even like, for, at first, you find tools and coping mechanisms, like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm booked solid, yeah. thank you so much. Like, I, I don't expect people to just walk right out and be able to own that stuff because that, that's a muscle. Yeah. And you have to train how to talk about it and you have to have language around it. Um, but just not being a jerk. And because if, you have, if you're principled and you say, oh gosh, you know, I understand that you only have $500, I can recommend a couple of people who are in that price range, but <clears throat> you know, this is my rate. What happens is if you sort of politely say no, that when they do find five thousand yeah. dollars, you're still the five thousand dollar person. Yeah, and so you'll end up getting a lot of the folks that you because you become I don't know this is psychologically or good or bad, but you just stick into your values. And when they actually find five grand, they'll call you because you are their five thousand dollar person. God, so, it's true. Yeah, but I think that is a strong back example of it's so easy to crater under that pressure mm -hmm. and then be resentful and then not be able to get climbed back out of that. Yeah, yeah. it's a. So I think the soft front, can we talk about that for a second? That um, one thing I've learned, well, I've learned so many things from my wife, especially in the last year, she's been teaching me a lot, um, is that soft front. She's like always, she's just always coming from a place of love. And talk to me about how important, I know you've, you've done research for you know 20 years. Um, what role does soft front play in connection, in empathy, in, you know, creating great stuff and being your authentic self. Just talk to me a little bit about the, what role the soft front plays in that. I think the soft front to me is about vulnerability, authenticity, and generosity. 
Um, I think it's about being vulnerable, um, which is kind of letting yourself be seen. Mm -hmm. um, and it's about being generous. It's about when, if things, if you and I get sideways really quick around something, um, which is very Texas saying, like <laughs> if we get frustrated or pissed off at each other. In yeah, we're stuck in the craw. <laughs> um, if we get frustrated with each other, to approach you with generosity of spirit. Um, I used to have a mentor that would say the hypothesis of generosity. What can I assume is, do, do I think Chase is really just trying to piss me off and upset me and be unfair to me? Or how can I approach you generously? Like, boy, that conversation we had, I can't, I, it hurt my feelings, I think. And help me understand where you're coming from. Like, a soft front to me is not, it goes with, I mean, just a soft front without a strong back is not good. Yeah. And just a strong back without a soft front is bullish, you know? And so I think the soft front is generosity, curiosity, love, vulnerability, assuming the best of, a pe of people. Can I use a thing that I learned from you on you right now? Yeah. It's, it's I'm telling myself a story. Yes. That is an insanely effective technique. Elaborate on that for the folks who don't oh, know. Oh yeah, no, it was like, it's changed my life, my marriage, the way I parent, everything. And it's just this sentence that when we're in struggle and when we feel like emotionally, our back is up against the wall, our brains are hardwired for narrative and story, mm -hmm. which is why creatives are so successful yeah. because they're, they're storytellers. Mm -hmm. Whether it's whether a single photograph or a painting or, or a book, or a book right? And so our brain wants a story, and our brain likes a story that, you know, pitches bad guys, good guys, safe and dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so the stories we make up normally are our worst fears and turn the people that are in our stories into enemies. And so if I can say to Steve, so this is a great conversation that happened not too long ago where I said, hey, I think my mom's coming over for dinner. And he said, God, does she have to come tonight? And I was like, huh. yeah. Huh. Um, and so, right. And so what I wanted to say was, well, I won't say what I wanted to say, <laughs> but um, what I said was, the story I'm making up is you don't want to see my mom. And he goes, no, it's just that I've got to go drop off at field hockey tonight. I won't be back here till 8 o'clock, so I won't get to see her. But if she comes tomorrow, I'll be able to have dinner with you and date with, you know, with your mom and your stepdad. But could you imagine, because what I was going to say is, when he said, does she have to come tonight? I was going to say, yeah, she does, but you know what? You don't need to. Or, wait a minute, you don't want to have dinner with my mom, yet I have dinner with your mom. You know? yeah. And then now, it's now yeah. we're in that yeah. territory. As opposed to, ouch, the story I'm making up is you don't want to see my mom. No, I just can't see her if she comes tonight. Can she come tomorrow night? How simple is that? Simple, but like marriage saving. Yeah, it is. It's... I, you, and I use those words in, like you just used, and it's just a very simple phrase, like I'm telling myself a story yeah. that, and then I would say nine out of 10 times, the person responds with something just that was not at all the worst case scenario yeah. that you made up. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna reference Tony Robbins, who talks about the, our brain being the brain rather than our brain. And a, it's a you know, millions of years old organ that's developed over time and its goal is not to make us happy. Its goal is to keep us alive. That's it. And, and when I think of everything that I've learned from your work and your research and your writing and your storytelling, that it is a way to like, this thing, you work for me. 
Yeah. I don't work for you. You work for me. Yeah. So of the work that you've done, what role does, you know, of, what role do you think Braving the Wilderness in particular plays to, um, to getting your brain to work for you? Like what part of the narrative, what part of Braving the Wilderness have you, you know, what's the construction that you, what's the fortitude, what's the thing that you brought to the The program? paradox. That we have to, it's not as black and white as we've made it. It's not as people are complicated. We have really complex beliefs. We don't understand everything or each other. And that we have got to, it's the paradox, it's the power of real, you know, if you dig into, if you're a social scientist and you dig into intellectual kind of how we measure intellect. Mm -hmm. We measure intellect by a person's ability to hold competing ideas at one time and not choose one or the other, over the other. So I can have a political belief that I believe in and I can love you and care about you even though you do not share that belief. I can support African-American activists and support the welfare of police officers. I can support, I can say to you when I hear something that's bullshit like, hey, you either evacuated Houston or you got what you deserve. That's, that's bullshit, mm -hmm. which is different than lying. And I talk about it a lot in the book because yep. as, as it turns out, there's, there's like scientists who study bullshit. The, what is that on bullshit? There's a, yeah. whole paper, there's a paper It's a book, book. on bullshit. Yeah, and, there, and, he's not, and there's not just one. There's like a lot of people <laughs> who study it. Bullshit is not just a flagrant denying the authority of the truth. Bullshitters don't acknowledge the truth at all. And so when someone says, look, you either got what you deserve, you know, either evacuated in Houston or you got what you deserve, how do I speak truth to that but be civil? Can I speak truth? Yes, I can say, tell me more. Well, you knew Harvey was coming, so if you lost your house and you were in danger and it was scary, it's your fault, you could have left. So let me tell you what it's like for me. There are six million people in Houston and when we evacuated before people died trying to evacuate, we didn't evacuate because we were told to shelter in place because that's what you have to do when there are two highways out of Houston and six million people. And so when you say that, I don't feel like you hear or see the pain that we're in. I read that in your, on your Facebook post. That oh, a, yeah. A woman who said, and I think you addressed it in, in a, a video or a live post or something like, hey, if, you're wondering why we're here. It's because we were literally told to by the, by, yeah. by the government. They said, you know, you're going to be X, Y, Z, stay there. Yeah. And, and I believe that you, you called that out. And then a woman said, yesterday on your Facebook page, I called you out. And I'm here to say that I effed up. And I want to own it. And I thought that was badass. Oh, it was badass. Yeah. I had the most badass community <laughs> on Facebook. Because she said, not only did I, was I one of the people, you know, saying you should have just evacuated, which is not empathy, it's judgment, and it's a way we protect ourselves, like this wouldn't be happening to me, I would have done something different. Um, I, I owned it and I apologized, and then 2,000 people in this community liked what I did, and I got hundreds of comments supporting me for being brave. She's like, where does this happen? Yeah. And I said, it happens here, because I think the contribution of this book is the, is the power and the beauty of the paradox of we can hold competing ideas 
And just because it creates anxiety and vulnerability in us doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. And owning, what did you call it? Uh, did you call it owning your story? Yeah. So that you can write the end? Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of, that was part of like the Rising Strong piece is that if I could grab the whole world right now and replace the word hate with pain, I think we'd have a much clearer understanding of what's happening. Um, Say more. People are in pain, yeah. and pain will not be denied. And so the way that pain is surf surfacing right now is hatred of other people. And I think that especially happens when you have leadership that sees people in pain, sees people in uncertainty, and hands them an enemy. Um, and it's a very quick way to build a kingdom mm -hmm. at a very high price of the people in that kingdom. Um, so I think if we look for our humanity in each other, and if we own our own pain instead of inflicting it on others, because it's easier it to is. cause pain than it is to feel pain. Yeah. I'm better at it. Yeah. Um, we're all better at it. I think we can change. I think we can find our way back to each other in a really important way. I mean, I'm sure of it. Let's go to the, um, the concept of leadership. Um, in a, you know, trying times, or whether it's inside a company of five people, or 5,000 mm -hmm. people, or, or 50,000 people, um, I think the leadership is more important than ever before. You talked about it, and there's yeah. bad ways to do it. And so having, you know, been inside of so many companies and have, having done so much research, what are some of the qualities of great leaders and how is that fostered? I would say the top three things I've learned from the most transformational leaders, what they have in common. They recognize and understand emotion in themselves. They recognize and can read emotion in others. And they're willing to have really tough conversations. That's, it's that simple. It, it is, yeah, and I can break it down. I mean, I spent the last year and a half interviewing um, 80 leaders inside of big Fortune 500 companies about transformational leadership, what works and what doesn't. And it's a lot of the work we do right now. And I would say that what we're looking for above everything else is we're looking for courage in leaders. We're looking for people who can show up, have, I have a great conversation, Seattle-based company, Costco. Oh yeah, um, the Bratmans. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry? I know the Bratmans. Yeah. yeah I know so I was on before their CEO. And so you know, my, the CEO went on, then I was going on speaking to a group of t kind of their top leadership a couple of years ago, Greg Janet. Yeah, so, incredible. Yeah, so he comes on and I think his team really wanted to do a scripted Q&A, but he was like, no, let's just open it up. They can ask me anything. So people started asking him questions and they were asking him hard, loaded questions, questions I have seen CEOs in board meetings dance around like you would not believe. <laughs> and that he would, they were just shooting these questions at him. He was answering them like this, honestly. Hard answers, not the kind of answers most CEOs would not say. Not made for TV. No, not made for TV. Not what, would the, not what the people in the audience wanted to hear. And so every time he, just, he would just say, uh, you know, thank you for the question. We're not gonna actually be doing that moving forward. I understand, this is why we're not doing it. Next question where most CEOs would be like, hey, that's a great question. Uh, Chase, get that down so we can circle back with, what's your name? And we, so we can circle back with Ann next week, you know, like. Yeah. But he was answering that and I was thinking, oh my God, 
oh my God, what is going on in this audience? And I have to go on right after right, him, yeah. you know? And so when he's done, everyone jumps to their feet and starts hooting and hollering and clapping over their heads for him. And I turn to the person sitting next to me and I'm like, what is going on? And they said, I'll never forget. She looked at me and she said, at Costco, we clap for the truth. Wow. Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a leader delivering the truth, not what people want to hear. Was that and a, also saying, I don't know a couple times. Yeah. Was that, did you feel like that was a part of the culture that they had sewn in, that we clap for the truth? Or did you, was that the woman in the moment saying what, what she no, just saw? No, that's the culture. Yeah, that's That's the culture. We yeah. clap for the truth. So leaders who can have hard, real conversations in respectful, productive ways. And I'll tell you what, that is, that is vulnerable. That's courageous. Leaders who can foster cultures of accountability, not blame and back-channeling. Um, leaders who can inspire people to take smart risks, um, innovate, fail, learn from it, clean it up, move forward. How, what role does speed play in leadership? I think uh, sort of underpinned in there was yeah. like that he's just answering these questions. And is that like, is speed both conversationally and like what an organization does? Does that, is that like relative to a bullshit meter? It's like they don't have any bullshit so they can just go right at it and, sometimes, and activate or? Sometimes yes, but sometimes it's, there's, I guess there's, when I think about speed and leadership and culture, I think about two different things. One is a sense of urgency. And most transformative cultures have a sense of urgency. That is hell on wheels to try to train in people who don't have it. Yeah. Like if you, if you start hiring people who do not have a sense of urgency, that is hard to teach people or to instill in people that don't come with that. Um, it is just tough. I'm thinking right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. I can see you registering on your mm -hmm. face. Speed. It's not about speed. It's about the sweet spot between thoughtful and decisive. And so I think what people are looking for are people who are both thoughtful and decisive. So they can make good decisions that are mindful of time, um, but they also are thoughtful about dependencies, critical paths, and consequences around the company. Okay. And so I think what you're looking for are two different qualities, um, a sense of urgency and straddling thoughtfulness and decisiveness. What role, I'm gonna keep going on that, because I think, yeah. You know, like roughly when I think about the community, they're kind of split between people who are full-time employed yeah. at somewhere else and people who are independent. And I love looking at where those yeah. things over, overlap. And so whether you're leading, you know, when I'm trying to find truth and whether you're leading, you know, 5,000 or five, yeah. um, there's so, I think there's so much commonality. And I do too. When, um, like the concept of innovation and failing, and you've probably also seen some patterns in there. Anything yeah. that you care to talk about there? Yeah, I mean, there's no innovation without failure. And so if you breed perfectionism and fear or lead with shame as a management tool, um, you're gonna have a really hard time innovating or innovation is going to rest in the hands of a few mm -hmm. that have a high tolerance for that kind of fear-based, scarcity-based culture, which is not innovation at all if it's in the hands of a few. And so the people who do it best are people who have systemically built in failure and learning from failure, real systems yeah. 
yeah. that we know this is coming. Like for so far in, in our offices, mm -hmm. we have a pretty high tolerance for failure. We have a low tolerance for failing around the same things more than once, yeah. but we have a pretty high tolerance for risk and failure. When there is failure, and there is inevitably, we go into a very specific process called the story rumble, where every stakeholder's at the table. Um, we spend a lot of time in problem identification because that's the, you know, Einstein. Yep. You know, if I had 24 yeah. hours to solve a problem, it's been, you know, one of them, uh, 20, 23 of them, I guess. No, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes defining the problem and five minutes solving it. So we go into problem identification first. Then we go into what story is everyone at the table making up. They write it and we post it so it's not told. So there's no kind of Ooh. halo effect Ooh. of what story is Brene, because you know, yeah, right. my company, Brene goes first. Brene right. goes first and it's the halo effect yeah. all the way around. So we all write it down, we post it up, we dig into what stories are true, what stories are not true. Is there stuff underpinning the stories that are not true that are getting in the way of success? And then we really dig in until, I mean, sometimes we've been in those rooms for four or five hours until we emerge with key learnings that we can embed in the culture so we don't repeat the mistake. What did we learn? What can we do different? But it's programmatic. It's a system. It's yeah. a system. And so you're taught that system during your onboarding with us. So there's an expectation that you're going to fail because you're taught how to get through it when it happens. Wow. So what about um, trust and accountability? So trust is really interesting. It says trust is a big part of the Braving book. It's part of Rising Strong as well. Trust was a real issue for me when I was talking to leaders about trust. And so I would say, how do you talk to people about trust? And they were like, well, it's really hard because as soon as you say you don't trust somebody, they can't hear you. And so I thought, we need a better way to deal with trust. So I went into all the data. We just kind of passed our 200,000 mark with data. So lots of data. So we went into the data trying to figure out, if Chase is talking to me about trust, if he pulls me in and he says, listen, I know you're upset about not getting the promotion. There are some trust issues we need to work on before that can happen. First of all, I go completely limbic. I can't hear anything you're saying after my trustworthiness is challenged. So what's a better way to do that? And I think a better way to do that is the, the seven elements of trust, which are measurable, observable behaviors. So instead of calling me in and saying, hey, I don't trust you or there's a trust issue, you dig into, we call it braving, it's an acronym, boundaries, reliability, accountability, vault or confidentiality, integrity, non-judgment or generosity. So instead of calling me in and just saying, I don't trust you, you call me in and say, we have to shore up our reliability issues before we can move you into a position like that. You have a tendency to overcommit and not deliver because you're overcommitted, so you're not reliable. And now I can hear you. There's something very specific that we can work on. We can observe it. We can measure it. We can change it. That. You have the bravery yeah. thing at that acronym. There's yeah. so many good systems in the book. Um, I'm going to pause on the research stuff for a yeah. second. And what I, I always, especially with you, I'm you're such an amazing person to like to, to be able to touch and to be like around. Like you just put off such a good vibe. And I'm going to try. I don't know the right way. I don't know where I'm going with this, but I want to try and like sew some of that into. Like yeah. if you're listening or watching right yeah. now, um, let's talk about you. As, as comfortable, as much as you want to talk yeah, about you personally, sure. like, what's, like, just a couple of things. What, what are some foods you like? What do you like to do? <laughs> what do you like to do on a Saturday and a Sunday? Like, take me inside your life just for a second. 
This is mm. something I'm trying. Like, yeah, I like it. It's a different, like, you know, these are people are on like, cameras, and it's like, you know, or yeah. made up faces and whatnot. Yeah. Like, what's I'm something? Super, I'm yeah. super, what people don't know about me. Yeah, yeah. What people don't know. Super private. Yes, that's kind of why I'm asking. Yeah, a I'm a bit. super private person. Um, and if, if this is like off limits, we'll just like. Oh no, okay. I'll let you know okay. for sure okay. when we get there. I'm not, I don't have, yeah. <laughs> boundaries, your boundaries. professional I'm, boundary setter. Yeah, one time I would, you know, I do, do some work at with Own. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone, Own is the Oprah Winfrey Network. Yes, and um, someone said, "Yeah, your nickname is BB," and I was like, "Oh yeah, people call me BB Grown Up, Brene Brown." They're like, uh, "No, it sounds for, stands for Boundaries Brown." I was like, "Oh, mm-hmm. take it, sold." Mm-hmm. No, I'm really private. Uh, I'm very introverted. So I can do like big talks in front of thousands of people because it's my work, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't want to be at a party with over 10 people or something like that. But I'm very introverted um, and very private. And by introverted, you mean that's where you get your energy from? I get my energy right. like alone mm-hmm. with my family or with my data. Yeah, in that order, like alone, family, data, yeah. And was, can you, is data like work, like career? Yeah, or thinking, is it, yeah. yeah, working. Yeah. Looking at data, reading interviews, analyzing stuff, yeah, thinking. Um, and how about when you do have to be on stage? You're, I mean, you're, you know, homies with Oprah. You do a lot of television. You're really hard stuff for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, words are really important to me, so I like to be thoughtful about what I say, and so that writing, sometimes- Is that why writing is Yeah, writing is so good, yeah. And speaking, I think it's, I really have fun speaking. Because it's the, it's the work, so it's like, it's not a social setting. Um, I get homesick really easy, so I try not to be on the road for more than three or four days at a time. My happy place is like laying on a couch or like in bed, like with Steve and the kids, so I can like smell all their hair. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. That's an amazing yeah. detail. So like, I just, yeah, I just like, oh, yeah, I, I just. Upbringing? Um, oldest of four, very Texas, tough, um, zero vulnerability. Was that, your, was that your vehicle into it? Was you realized that you were? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was just such a cluster because we were, the mandate was be brave and the other mandate was never be vulnerable. And that shit doesn't work because you can't be courageous without being vulnerable. And so I think that. I think all the hard stuff growing up really fueled my work. Um, and I think I'm like the luckiest girl in the world because my parents and everyone just learned what they, they read the books with us, we talk about it, we talk about hard things and my parents will say we didn't know and um, they're just like these amazing grandparents to my kids and um, we just grew up you know, kind of together and learned together. Um, I can be a good leader and I can and, but I have some real pain points in leadership, some real blind spots. I'm a real passionate person, and sometimes the people who work for me say it's like being across from, like being in a wind tunnel. Like you I can, have no idea what you're talking about. Really? You're not? Oh, kidding. okay, I'm, got it. Okay, I good. I am the worst I'm looking, yeah. at that. Yeah. He's we, looking. Share, we, we share that. Yeah, no. I, and it's, it's my passion, but it's mm-hmm. the dark side of my passion. Mm-hmm. Like, I get, can get really worked up about something. Um, I'm not good in scarcity and fear. Um, I make bad decisions when I'm afraid. 
What else? I like. Um, I love this. This is yeah. gold. I don't know. Okay, yeah, I, no, thank that's you great. So much of for course. This. So I'm fun. trying to think what else is interesting. Um, and this is the way you get when you were just like hanging out with Brene. And so I was yeah, because we deliver talk, that. We, we yeah. talk very like. We hadn't seen each other for a year and we were like super down, deep in like. Deep in five seconds, <laughs> yeah. Um, I do have really good boundaries around most things. Um, I told you earlier, like, I got sober the day after I finished graduate school. I quit smoking and drinking. Um, and... Can I share in the book that you yeah. talk about trying to find a group? You went to A and they said, no, you're not welcome here. Yeah, I was like, like <laughs> yeah, they were like, you don't drink enough. And I was like, go to CODA. And I was like, okay. And I go to CODA and they're like, I think you should be an AA or maybe like, like I just got OA. Out of there. and then I was like, I go to OA and they're like, no, we don't think you're here. We think, and I was like, what, what, what kind, kind of, of shit is it when you don't belong in AA? Like you get kicked out of AA like for not belonging. Like, come on, this people. Is the, like you're like just even sharing that is so incredible. Yeah, it was it's like, so what incredible. the hell? And then I finally found like a sponsor, like you get a sponsor right away. And so we went to go eat dinner and she's like listening. She's like, I was like, I can't, I, I don't have a home. She's like, you've got the poo-poo platter of addictions. You just need to stop drinking, eating, smoking, and getting in your family's business. I was like, son of a sea cook. I'm like, what am I going to do with my time? Um, you know, and so I tried it. I tried them all. So I did, you know, so I think part of my big sobriety was I had this other sponsor who we would go out to, to lunch or dinner, and I would say, oh, I'll get it, and you can get it next time. She goes, no, I'll get mine this time and you get yours this time. And I was like, oh my God, because that's like, that's not that big Texan, like, don't worry about it. I got it. That's yeah. on me, you know? Um, and then piss and moan the whole way home because you had to buy it and they drank <laughs> five bottles of wine. Like, that's the Texan way. And so I was like, okay. And then I got to this point where I was like, very much very good at boundaries and very good at. Um, saying, telling what people, well, what's okay and what's not okay. And at first I was like a boundary bully. Like I swung too far. And so people would say, hey, Ellen's going to spend, yes, Ellen's going to spend the night tonight and we're going to watch this movie. I'm like, oh, uh, well, well, I could understand you would let your kids watch that movie. That's inappropriate because there's like a lot of bad gender role models. And so, you know, I was like, then I became like the bully, boundary bully. Then I was just, then I kind of swung back in the middle. And so now I'm like, Oh, that sounds good. Um, probably not something Ellen can see. Is there something else y'all, would you mind watching something else? As opposed to like taking people to task for their yeah. choices. So I like boundaries. Um, I like eggplant. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. I love, you like, I love that you like eggplant. I do like eggplant. Do you like eggplant? I do. I like it. I, I once made, a, I have a little bit of a fear of eggplant because I once tried to make Kate eggplant lasagna and it was like the worst. I just put them in there and yeah. with the sauce, and I didn't. And I was like, again, the sauce gets hot in like twenty minutes, but apparently it takes a very long time. Yeah. If or cook those eggplant first. first. Yeah. Missed that what Kate bit. Think she just ate around them. She no, we, we like we're one minute in, and she's trying to she's trying to just like <laughs> crave it, and then I'm like, this is literally the worst thing you've ever had, isn't it? We cried laughing. It was so so good. So I have a little bit of a. Like it, it stumped me, and one of, one of my worst cooking moments was eggplant lasagna. But I do love eggplant. I like eggplant with like olive oil. Um, I'm gonna shift gears for a second. Okay. Uh, I'm just gonna try and we're gonna yeah. we're, we're keeping it moving. 
So we talked a lot about creativity. We talked a little bit about innovation. You, you, you went to, you yourself showed some vulnerability, sharing your strengths and weaknesses. What, like, like strength and authenticity and, and power? I think it, what I, there's a cultural sensitivity around um, just something came up in, in my life recently where, and, and Kate and I managed this personally and professionally. She's, you know, basically is, was so critical in the business that we built as, you know, as the photography business, which ultimately transitioned into Creative Live. Right. She was so instrumental in that, and I'm a big personality, I'm not gonna lie, and yet Kate and I had to work on if I'm big, did it mean she was small right. by default? Because I walk into a room and right. I'm excited and excitable. Yeah. And, and I'm trying to find a way to not have to not be, because if I'm not that, I'm not me. No, yeah, you have, yeah. And so it's, I, this is, I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> help help uh, for those folks who do have that wind mm -hmm. tunnel or yeah. that, uh, the way that you described it. Um, Tell us how we can be okay with that and what we should do to manage it. I know you're not a therapist, but what would you, given the framework of all your research? I think... There's clearly some authenticity thing in there. Like, I, I just can't... No, I think it's... I think I'm trying to build a case for being me. Yeah, I... I, I, I... Is it a non-issue and I'm just... Yeah, I don't. I think. I don't think bigness and kind of excitement and passion and enthusiasm is something that I'm willing to apologize for because I don't think being mindful and thoughtful and loving and generous to other people and being myself are mutually exclusive. And I think it, the caricature of myself or the caricature of you mm -hmm. may be mutually exclusive with who we want to be, but I think who we are is not. Yeah. And so I think um, I think it goes back to the paradox thing that you are kind of a big. Um, I would. I, I don't know that. I. That's. I guess I'm struggling with that term. I think you have a lot of passion. And you have a lot of focus, and I think you're, there's an intensity. I actually, someone told me, a therapist told me that I seem to crave intensity. I don't I, know if, I don't know Yeah, if I mean, I think there's a, probably, and I'm, an, I'm a very intense person, and I mean, I think that, I think it, I don't know if it's this book or the other book I write about, like, having total personality dysmorphia. Like, someone told me I was a very serious person and I was so offended by that because I thought I think of myself as like Meg Ryan and French Kiss, like kind of goofy <laughs> and silly and things like that. And then I was like, Steve, do you think I'm a serious person? And he's like, You're a super serious person. And he's like, But you don't think I'm funny? And he's like, No, you're funny, but you're serious funny. And it's like, Do you think I'm like whimsical? And he's like, uh, No, you're no whimsy. Like you're not a whimsical person. Like you're a very, it was somebody in French said you're très sérieux, uh -huh. like which you're very serious, uh -huh. which is like a, a way they talk about people. And so I think intense or serious. There's, that French word has a little bit of gravity to it. Serious is also yeah. like your, your presence, or I guess that's the way I always say Does it mean darkness? Like I don't know, like I don't want to pretend to over, over index on my French skills, but I always, when I would use it serious, it was serious and like you have some gravity about you, like. I never, I like the Grim Reaper? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. 
<laughs> like, no, I don't know. I just don't think, right. I don't think. I'm trying to not we, make this about me because we talk a lot about vulnerability and how you do it. And I'm like, no, but, but I, this, is, this is something. That I, I think know. this is super important. I think that because everyone watching is either, you know, either maybe shares things in common with us or shares things in common with maybe Kate mm -hmm. or, you know, even Steve, who's a quieter yeah. person, our partner, yeah. you know. Um, I don't think your level of intensity or focus necessarily, I know really quiet people who can be very self-centered and not thoughtful about other people. I know really intense, focused people who can be. I don't think that speaks to our thoughtfulness about other people because when I came in here, you asked me, how, how am I doing with Harvey? What's going on? What's it been like to be on the book tour? You were so curious about me and my life in a real genuine way, but in a real focused and intense way yeah. too. Let's get into it. Right. I've but, been, I haven't seen you in a year. Yeah. Gonna, yeah, I get it. But I thought it was beautiful and warm. And so I think we got to be careful to not think of ourselves as the caricatures of the things we worry about. Like, I don't apologize anymore for being a serious person. And it's not that I'm not funny or I don't like to have fun. Um, I just may not think you're funny or want to have fun specifically with you. <laughs> like, that, that just may be what no, it is. It's like, so true. You have do the you know best I mean? laugh, too, by the way. The best laugh. Oh, no. It's terrible sometimes. There's another person at my office that laughs kind of like me. And they're like, it's parents are mating in the other room. Because we're both like, aha, aha. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, it's... I feel like you went there. I feel, yeah, I feel satisfied. I don't know. I, I, think, I think it's a big I think the question. caricature is interesting. Like I'm telling myself a story that my caricature um, uh, like often gets mistaken for, um, but I'm really, I think the way Kate has, and I have come to work on it is like, I'm like a candy bar, a little, little bit crunchy on the outside, but super good on the inside. And anyone who I get to know a little bit, like you're okay with that, like the crunchy outside. Yeah. It's just like, okay, it's kind of, yeah. it, can be, it can be something. Okay. Um, diversity and inclusion. I think the, everything that I have built that had any strength or transcendence or um, beauty behind it took in a lot of different, there was a lot of different inputs. And I think about that from like building Creative Live um, and there's all kinds of, uh, I, I think culturally right now, we're more aware of the opportunity that we've missed over a long period of time to include different ideas and different cultures. And can you just talk to me a little bit about that? It's, it's present in your research. You mentioned yeah. it earlier a couple times. Yeah, I think that, um God, I don't even know where to start with that. It's so big. Yeah, um, no, no, it's, it's, yeah, you know, I can take it to talk about it very personally with us. Um, if you really want to be successful and you really want to, that transformative success, that success that really, where you really make a contribution and you disrupt something, even if it's your own work, you disrupt your own work, you have to have, you have to build really long tables with seats for everyone, more tables, fewer walls. And you have to have different voices and you have to have leadership that has the courage to say, I think we've got a race issue going in here. I think we've got a gender issue going on here. You have to have the courage to, look, 
You cannot stop people from making up stories. You can create a culture where people have permission to check them out. Mm. You know, and yeah. that requires some really strong leadership around inclusivity, around diversity. Um, and we need to look like the people we serve. And then you see it reflected in the work. Yeah, and, then, and you yeah. see it reflected in the work, yeah. yeah. And look, white supremacy, that's a real thing. And I think the things that we've seen in Charlottesville around the country have kind of mortified a lot of moderate white folks. Mm -hmm. And I think people of color have woke up every day of their lives and that's what they're up against. They've seen it, we haven't. And now we see it and now it's time to do something about it because it's not the job of the people who are the victims of those violence to build the tables and invite people to sit down and figure it out. It's our job to do that. I mean, it's our job to do that. And so we all can do something. And here's the hard part. And sometimes I get really weary, but if you're going to opt into that conversation, you're going to find yourself on the shit end of some criticism yeah. um, because you're not going to be able to do it perfectly. But opting out of the conversation because you could get criticized is the definition of privilege to say, I don't want to take this on because this could get messy and hard and I could say the wrong thing and someone might think I'm racist or sexist or homophobic, to opt out of the conversation because it's uncomfortable is what privilege is. So I think we opt in, we screw it up, we listen, we learn, and we do better. Thank you for that. That's, uh, I'm, I think I'm so culturally sensitive because of the times, and you've referenced it so many times in our conversation today that we're living in, and so there's a microscope on this stuff, and um, I think the, the fact that information moves so quickly, you, are, you get to see the pervasiveness, in it, and um, not just culturally how, how far we have to go, but inside of any organizations and inside of a single heart, yeah. there's, there's a thousand miles to cover. There's a thousand um, miles to cover, and yeah. we're gonna have to pick each other up and carry each other some of the way. Um, last last question. Okay. Um, Steeled for it. It's it's pretty small question. Okay. What are you most excited about right now, in your life, that we could know about? It doesn't have to be obviously. I don't need it to say like you're good at boundaries, so I don't have to qualify it. But what are you? What are you, maybe not most. I always hate the most question. Most because, questions are really yeah, hard. Not, um, what are you excited about right now? I think. We can maybe you can just wander a little bit in the wilderness with professionally, personally. Like I'm excited about, you know, that the book is out. I'm excited that that the book tour is almost over. I'm excited about. Just I always like to end on some some joy. Like what's bringing you joy right now? You talked about a lot about being in bed and smelling hair. Yeah. But. Um, I think what brings me real joy right now. Um, is having witnessed what I believe is true and real about people during Hurricane Harvey in Houston. I think that has been, you know, it was a hard way to get it. And uh -huh. if I could undo it, I would, because so many yep. people have lost so much. But um, I feel like I needed a little bolus of hope about what humanity is really about. Mm -hmm. And um, I've seen that, and I know it's true, and I know it's real, um, and I know it's possible. And I think 
we're gonna find our way back to each other. So I think in the big world, I'm most excited about that. I think in the smaller world, um, I'm going to Seattle. Yes. Um, we have to find a way to, I know your schedule's packed, but I gotta sneak Kate in the back door because I'm sitting here with you and she's not. She's oh, like, yeah. I'm getting texts right now. Like, yeah, Kate can like, come in any back door. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, so I'm excited. I'm going to okay. um, spend some time with the Seahawks. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think um, that's really exciting. Do your Texans get jealous when you spend time with the Seahawks? I don't think so. You haven't checked in? I haven't checked yeah, in with okay. them on that. <laughs> sorry, Maybe. Just, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh no, I just no. did that for you. Um, so I'm excited about the book tour. I'm excited about seeing everybody. Um, Is that the next stop on the book tour? Uh, Austin tomorrow night, Portland, mm -hmm. then Seattle. Yeah, and then you know what else I'm really excited about? What's that? I'm going to do the sermon at the National Cathedral um, in Washington D.C. And so wow. yeah, I'm an Episcopalian, so that's a really big deal. Wow. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. I know somebody probably for that. How'd you figure that one out? I don't know. I just got an invitation. I thought it was like, at first I did like Google it. I was like, am I allowed to do that? Like, if <laughs> do I, said, I have the proper credentials? Do I have the credentials to do that? Um, so I'm excited about that. So I feel really grateful for the opportunity to talk about the work with a really engaged, meaningful community. And so, yeah, I'm excited about dinner. Will you hand me that book so my chair doesn't squeak? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You do have, a, you have an interesting chair. She's at Brene Brown pretty much everywhere. Um, yeah. That's the book that you want to get your hands on right there. Um, your work is totally transformational. Uh, Thank you. You're an icon, and you're so like freaking cool about it. I love it. Thank you so much oh. for being on the show. It's so cool. And I just gonna I'm just gonna tell you right now we're gonna go out to dinner. So I'm the conversation. Really excited about that. Conversation is just now starting for us. I'm sorry we have to cut the cameras off. I love all you guys. Thank you so much for paying attention. I hope you all have a wonderful day. I'll probably see you in my in my inbox. Hopefully, wait, I will make a video and maybe be in your inbox tomorrow. Thanks again for being a part of the community. Mwah, love you guys. Love you Brittany guys. Brown. Thank you. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platform. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.